This is Beyond Species, a podcast exploring issues around speciesism and the struggle to dismantle it. In this episode, we hear from Dr. Michelle Westerlaken. Michelle explains her concept of multi-speciesisms or multi-species worlding, a response to speciesism that looks for traces of how we humans interact with other species in our everyday lives, so as to imagine how relationships might take place in a non-speciesist future. Michelle's work draws in strands from a range of disciplines, including interaction design, post-humanism, and indigenous ways of knowing. Michelle finds the ethic of care a challenging but generative concept worth exploring. She also discusses the concept of the best tree in her thesis, which opens up spaces for non-humans to tell stories, as well as to push our questions around speciesism into controversial territory. Gaming can also provide imaginative spaces for vegans to explore their ethics and enact non-speciesist worlding. If you could give us an introduction to your studies and an explanation of interaction design. Yes, uh, so thank you so much for having me, first of all. Uh, So interaction design, I think most broadly, to me at least, is about our relationships with things like technologies and artifacts, but also like processes and systems. And then like as a design field, I would say that it looks at how these objects and uh, processes can be developed in a way that are meaningful, for example, for the users or for also for other stakeholders who are then also impacted by these designs, such as animals, of course. Uh, But it can also be seen like more broadly as, for example, like designing for a sustainable world or designing for social equality or for any kind of justice, uh, or in the case of my research as designing for multi-species societies. And so what I was trying to do in my research, I think sort of the the biggest question, like the the main question that I asked myself is what could then a multi-species society look like and how do we interact with other animals in such a a world? Yeah, so... That kind of brings us on to the next question, which is, what is, if you could maybe just explain, like, what a multi-species approach is, or what multi the multi-speciesisms concept that you have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in my, in my readings, like, when we talk about speciesism, so speciesism refers, as I think most of the listeners to your, your podcast already know, it refers to the oppression and exploitation of other animals. But at the same time, it's a critique of something, right? We're saying like it's similar to, for example, racism or classism or sexism, as we put it on the agenda like that. But then when we engage in design work, we are also we are trying to actually imagine, like imagining possible alternatives to speciesism. So we're trying to envision a world without speciesism. And I had this experience myself when I was doing a case study with a group of penguins in a zoo in the US. And I was trying to think of like, well, zoos are inherently speciesist, but so how can I design something with these penguins in mind 
that is not speciesist, right? So mm -hmm. I was trying to do the case studies and, you know, kind of sort of ask these penguins, like, <laughs> what do you think? And trying mm -hmm. to design with them. But the problem was that I was only thinking about what is, you know, what is non-speciesism. And thereby I was only trying to generate ideas, you know, for what it's actually against, right? Yeah. And then you go into something like critical design, where you sort of use design to highlight a problem, for example. There are a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of examples of that out there as well. But what I wanted to do is not offer like a critique of it, but I wanted to envision like an alternative. Mm -hmm. And to me, so the idea of non-speciesism as a concept doesn't really kind of help me to imagine such alternatives, mm -hmm. uh, because it's kind of only uh, trying to describe what it is not, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that the notion of speciesism is very important, you know, in critique and activism in, in many different ways. Uh, but it's it seems to be also quite difficult if I ask people, you know, what is the opposite of speciesism to actually describe it uh, in a way without saying what it what it's not. So without using a negation or like an anti of something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is not only with speciesism. I mean, I mean, this is also when we say like non-anthropocentrism or even like post-humanism, for example. We're, you know, we're using certain concepts that are added as a, as a way to describe something else. Yeah. And that makes it very hard to design with such concepts in mind. Mm -hmm. So what I was trying to do is I was trying to see like, okay, what terms are, are there that, that, we can, that we can use maybe in design to describe such alternatives in a positive way? And for example, I think veganism is a thing to talk about here as well, because I think it's used a lot mm -hmm. and it's it's mostly used as a consumption ideology. Right. But there are also people who describe like vegan societies, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, but still, like I was thinking, OK, so can I say like I just had a vegan interaction with a squirrel, for example, yeah. like would that, you know, would that mean that we didn't eat each other maybe? Yeah. <laughs> or what does it say about the relationship that we have? So I was a little bit like, maybe that's, that's not the right term. Hmm. So maybe for our, you know, interactions and our relationships, we need to think about, uh, about other terms as well. And there, there is some use of, of the, the notion of multi-species societies or multi-species world. So, and I ended up using that term as well. So, <laughs> So for our interactions and relationships between species, sometimes we talk about, for example, multi-species societies or multi-species world. So I ended up using that term as well. Mm -hmm. uh, or perhaps as an ideology, like I use this thing like multi-species-isms as also as a plural thing that we're never quite sure what it exactly is. Uh, but for now, I'm thinking like multi-species worlds may, may perhaps be better, but there is a little bit of risk this term as well because fields like critical animal studies use this this term multi-species worlds but it's also used by other kinds of fields like post-humanism or eco-feminism or also this kind of feminist new materialism like kind of haraway direction mm -hmm. and then it's not necessarily used as a as an opposite of, of speciesism as an antonym to that term mm -hmm. so i also think it's important you know when we say multi-species world like what do we mean and in my thesis i try to be very clear that i'm searching for what is the opposite of speciesism mm -hmm. uh, and of course it's not a perfect you know it's not a perfect answer to it either as maybe you know a lot of most research is not leading to any perfect yeah. answers but it's an attempt to try and find uh, an opposite to speciesism so that's how I use the the term mm -hmm. yeah so I mean and that's why I really like it because what I find so often in um, kind of anti-speciesist activism is that we spend a lot of time pointing out what the bad things are and it's kind of that whole thing about resistance and although there is things like the sanctuary movement where people are learning to live alongside animals in different ways and creating new relationships or new kinds of relationships with them 
I think I said this to you when we were setting up the podcast about prefigurative politics. If we were thinking about multi-speciesisms, multi-speciesisms is more like a, a positive engagement. Like, so it's pushing you in that direction, whereas the anti-speciesism is just like focused on the resistance element. So multi-speciesism is about like creating or growing new things. And I feel like in the, if you want to call it the vegan movement or the animal rights movement, that there's so much focus on showing the truth, the bad stuff that happens mm -hmm. and trying to get laws changed to stop the bad things. And, and that whole kind of legal aspect that we're not spending enough time on actually showing the public new ways of living with the animals that are around us, like not just animals that are, you know, cordoned off in sanctuaries and in the specific safe zone, but like you were saying, like squirrels and all these other mm -hmm. kind of liminal animals that live around mm -hmm. us that we see often every day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, you're also sort of referring, I think, to this work of uh, uh, Sue Donaldson and Will Kimlicka in the, in mm -hmm. your talking as well, like, they, and they, they have done, you know, work towards this end as well, because I think in their book, Zoopolis, they also, um, you know, show how to speculate, how to imagine, how to think about other kinds of relations that are, they're not just a critique. So there's definitely also work that, that tries to, tries to do that as mm -hmm. well in other fields. And it's not only in design, let's say, because I think that yeah. this idea of imagination comes, you know, comes in all kinds of fields. I mean, not design, or mm -hmm. uh, it's also about like policy making, for example, or, or also, I mean, we can talk about artists, but also like everyday, everyday living with. Mm -hmm. And so what I tried to do in my thesis was to instead of sort of working towards like the grand ideas that perhaps is more common in, in the concepts that, uh, that, that are occurring in Zoopolis, you know, with the liminal animals and mm. the citizenship, uh, I was mm. trying to make it very small and to see like what mm. are kind of maybe traces of such a multi-species world that we can find yeah. in our everyday lives. Because perhaps yeah. those are very, you know, because there's a, those are not closed off ideas, but mm -hmm. they are kind of seeds or something that maybe can inspire us to, to think further mm -hmm. about it because they're always a little bit unsure, a little bit messy, a little bit open-ended still. So mm -hmm. those I think are really interesting for designers to look at. Yeah. And that was, yeah, that's definitely part of it because maybe that's something about the animal rights movement. It's got these big ideas, but if we're trying to get everyday people to transform themselves in a way uh we need to give them things they can work with like ways that they can every day in their own life make these little changes so one thing i really liked was the example you gave about the person letting a fly out of the window so whereas normally you might see a fly and think immediately to just swat it but if you think about it and you're, you're wanting to change your relationship to animals that's a way that you could you know, it's such a small act, but you're actually changing that relationship you have with the fly. And so when you start thinking down to that scale, you can see how if we start thinking in that way, we can start changing the relationships we have with animals all around us in our own lives, you know, and that's where like, I think, think it's a powerful concept. Yeah, and to me, that is like a kind of trace, like the, the idea of opening the window to let a fly out that is stuck there. To me, that is like a kind of trace of, well, this is actually what the opposite of speciesism could be, or this is actually what, mm -hmm. you know, 
what's a multi-species what what a multi-species world is so that's why i'm using like mm. the the, the plural idea of worlds and that they're everywhere and i was thinking mm. even kind of more about this drawing that is in the thesis about this fly as well like so how are these windows actually designed you know can we think of windows mm. that have a more kind of a different i mean i'm not a window designer so i'm definitely not an expert on that but, you know, can we think of the way that we design windows in a way that maybe flies will get stuck less or in a different way, or it's very easy to, to open and let them out? Things like this. I mean, that could be like a sort of generative way of thinking. But, mm. Yeah. So you were talking about imagination there and the importance of imagination. And in the thesis, you talk about multi-species worlding. So if you could maybe just give us a little bit more on what worlding, the concept of worlding is, because um, I think a lot of people listening might not be too familiar with that, because I know it's quite common in kind of like post-humanities and like the work of Donna Haraway and stuff, but I don't think Donna Haraway is very well read within the animal rights community, maybe, because she doesn't a- approach this from an animal rights perspective, really. Um, and then that's kind of about why is it important about how we design designs as well yeah i think the notion of worlds or or worlding is such a debated term in different fields of research so there's you know many different understandings of what this means and and depending on how how you read and uh, and how you kind of interpret them so in in my thesis i'm i'm particularly inspired by scholars like donna haraway uh, also, Timothy Morton, I think, is an interesting person here, and, and Anna Singh as well, in the kind of uh, Haraway perspective. Mm-hmm. And they use like worlds or worlding as something that is not like something that is exclusive to uh, exclusive to humans. So they want to say like animals, and and for Timothy Morton, even sort of non-living entities, they they make worlds. Uh, and mm-hmm. so that's, I mean, especially Haraway and, and Singh, they describe worlding as something that is like active and ongoing and something that also animals do. Mm-hmm. And I think this is very intriguing for, for design, where design is often also seen as somehow like a world making or world building activity. Um, because this means that humans and animals both make worlds. And Annette Singh, I think she uses a very nice example. Like she writes that uh, beavers make worlds by building dams and thereby they change somehow the streams and they change the forest and the river ecologies. Uh, or like plants, they live on land because the fungi made the soil by digesting rocks. And that's why we have plants on land, for example. Or, you know, bacteria make our like oxygen atmosphere and then plants and trees like actually maintain it. So she wants to describe all of these kinds of processes as worlding or, or, or sort of enacting world or making world. And that I think that is very helpful for, for uh, design then. And Haraway, she then writes, she's inspired by a, a, another theorist called Marilyn Stratton. And Haraway writes like, it matters what worlds, world, worlds, or mm-hmm. it matters what thoughts think thoughts. It's a bit of a tongue breaker, but, and I, mm-hmm. I read this as an invitation, like to be a little bit more reflective about the ideas that generate our ideas or, you know, the knowledge that creates our knowledge. Because, you know, depending on the kinds of understandings or perhaps we can say like our world views, like different understandings come out of this. And I think one example of this could be the way that we kind of historically 
come to think about other animals as like less worthy or that this kind of, you know, in a hierarchy uh, where humans are, are like more valuable than, than other animals. And because these kinds of understanding are kind of like a result from our like more classic and, and modern perspectives, um, you know, mm-hmm. they created these hierarchies and, and that became sort of the norm and then that continued. So that creates, you know, the way that we interact with animals in our sciences and in our daily life as, as you know, what is the norm. Um, and so I think it's important to be critical of the things that create other things. And, and also in design, like I'm just, I mean, I've just added this thing here, right? It's kind of a logical extension. Also because in design, we talk about design also as a verb, right? So it becomes like, it matters what designs, design designs. Because all of the design work that we do is actually also a result of everything that is already there. So if we want to design for a, for a multi-species world, uh, we, we need to look for the inspiration and the elements of such worlds that already exist. So that's the main thing that I try to do in my in my thesis. I create a kind of like repertoire or kind of a different examples without sort of saying like this is better than the other because I mean there's like mm-hmm. without you know trying to create big ideas uh, from mm-hmm. them either. Like sm- finding this kind of small seeds that could help us like grow more ideas of what then multi-species worlds could be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So there's a lot to that. Um, so I think there's like, there's a tendency um, in animal rights to take like, yeah, the jumping off point for us is like the work that's been done, which is often very like utilitarian, like Peter Singer's work, um, kind of the rights-based work of Tom Reagan and things like that, which are kind of, of course, are helpful. But I think we're at a time where we are on the planet and climate change and stuff like that, where we're starting to realize that, I suppose it's like the colonial modernist project that is kind of trying to reduce everything on earth to like a flat, so that we're we're basically all using the same kind of universalized knowledge. Um, That these kind of indigenous knowledges are coming are, are coming to the fore they've always been there but they've been pushed away by like modernism and and indigenous knowledges kind of recognize that you know life is a web and everything is um interrelated and stuff which obviously the kind of white western construction is that everything can be categorized like you're saying into the hierarchy and we've got to fit things where we want them um so there's much more about um, that really comes through in your thesis is 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 like drawing on those kind of like you're not yeah like you say you're not really necessarily trying to find the one true answer because you recognize that that's not really possible in in a lot of cases um, and this is like in contrast with the mainstream animal rights movement, I think that is looking to find, you know, we've got the one truth that you can only treat animals in this certain way. And we're going to just like focus like, and it's, it's coming from the white Western perspective, most of it, I think. Um, so I'm not sure if I've got a question there. I just wanted to mm-hmm. kind of like, kind of translate it into my own words and how I see it. No, I think it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, these ideas of, of sort of the, the non-Western or the non-modern way of looking at the world, I think has been very important in my readings as well, like mm-hmm. thinking about how, you know, how other societies, how indigenous kind of knowledges uh, can actually 
inform different knowledges. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. the knowledges that create our knowledges, you know, that that mm -hmm. is not necessarily built from this uh, from from this modern uh, way of looking at things, but but can involve also other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that thing about the many many worlds as well that you you comment on. You know, I think that our our modern way of thinking, we just see the world as one world. But like you say, like there's there's just worlds within worlds, like the fungi that break down the rocks so that the plants can live and stuff like that. There's all sorts of different worlds going on at all these different scales that we can't always see, you know, we can't always see with our human eyes unless we kind of like break it down and stuff. So mm -hmm. yeah, this idea of many world world I read from this uh, scholar called John Law and he is very inspired by the this Aboriginal worldviews mm -hmm. uh, and how it how how their idea of worlding is different than than modernity's like one world world mm -hmm. as he calls it. Uh, so instead of seeing like the world as something that is fixed, something that is like mm -hmm. out there that we can like discover or know in a kind of very colonialist way actually. Mm. Um, the, the many world world then it entails this idea that worlds are actually continuously enacted. Mm -hmm. So we don't have a kind of fixed entity that's sort of holding it all together that can be mm. can be known by us, but it's mm. continuously changing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So that kind of leads on to I think the feminist care ethic, which you also cover in your work, because the feminist care ethic is kind of context dependent as well which is kind of different to the sort of legalistic rights model that the West prefers. I don't know if you want to maybe just briefly kind of explain how mm -hmm. you see the care ethic fitting into that, and then we could have a think about yeah. risks there. Yeah, I think the different, um, I mean, the different kind of concept I try to use in the thesis is really like an attempt at, you know, reading different work and trying to see, okay, this I think can be really helpful for me and sort of putting it together. So it becomes a little bit of a collage, you know, with this whole like worlding and then the kind of ethics or or then this other kind of more indigenous ideas of the animal telling, which we may talk about. So I think it's just kind of, for me, it has just been trying to read things and trying to see what works mm -hmm. uh, as an attempt to, you know, to create it. And for me, like this, this whole idea of care ethics or feminist or speculative ethics, to me, I think it can be nicely explained with the example of going to the grocery store that I quickly use in the thesis as well. So, you know, we all have experience with sort of going out and buying our food and many like more like traditional forms of ethics, like they propose certain fixed ideas about how to think about what is good or bad. And like a feminist ethics of care, like sees this process as much more like ongoing or uncertain or like kind of never ending. Mm -hmm. So if we had a kind of fixed idea of, of how to think about good or bad, we could know what to buy in the supermarket according to like a kind of formula that, you know, that in includes the things that we ought to take into account and how we can determine, you know, what is good or bad. So we may think about like our financial situation, if we should buy like organic or non-organic food or vegan or non-vegan fair trade, you know, what kind of allergies, what are the ingredients, where they're produced? I mean, this is like <laughs> stacking on, yeah. right? And so then doing groceries would be rather straightforward process because then we can know what we should and should not buy, right? Mm. But I think that we all experience how difficult it actually is to be in the supermarket and, and try to make decisions. Mm. Uh, this is a really complicated process because you need to think about all the possible things that you're caring about and all the possible things that you take into account. Mm. And thereby I see like, this idea of going out and doing groceries almost as a kind of doing ethics. Mm. And the change it changes, you know, every time we go there. 
-hmm. You know, what do I actually care about today? What do I feel like eating? Mm -hmm. uh, who else is this food actually for? So mm -hmm. who is other, like, you know, who else should I care about? How do I care about the planet today? How do I care about other animals today? You know, why should I care about other mm -hmm. um, others? And, and how much thought can I actually put into this today, you know, mm -hmm. with all other things going on that makes things complicated. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of ethics, I mean, it's mainly deriving from uh, Maria Puisela Balacasa, is much more like speculative or relational, and it's really uncertain. So it doesn't really lead to a to like a, a final answer on what is good mm -hmm. or better a conclusion, but it kind of continuously like wanders, mm -hmm. like how do we actually practice care today? And I mean, this is very risky, right? Mm. You can also highlight this is risky because, and and it has also been critiqued for 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 being so risky, mm. because then it becomes more about like what we pay attention to rather than what the end results should be, mm. and it cannot be universalized. It's more about like living with uncertainty. You know, what is the right thing to do? Mm -hmm. But for animal rights and and other kinds of animal activism, this is difficult because it means that we cannot say mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you know, veganism is the right thing or animal right is the right thing. Mm -hmm. But I would also say that this kind of ethics, to me at least, in the way that I kind of tried to use it in my thesis, is not so much about the, that final end result because I wasn't really looking for the conclusion, right? Mm -hmm. I was looking for like small traces that happen sort of in in these contextual situations and in these specific moments mm -hmm. uh, where we see different kinds of care so i wouldn't say that i mean at least i'm also not knowledgeable enough yet now to say that this could be a kind of ethics that can replace any other you know any other forms like let's say for how we think about making policy or how we think about mm -hmm. animal rights for example mm -hmm. uh, but i think I see it more as a way to think about like how we practice ethics in our daily life situations, such as, I mean, doing groceries or seeing a squirrel or, or you know, mm -hmm. engaging with a fly in a window, like these kind of moments. Mm -hmm. And I think what is very interesting about this kind of ethics, because in many of our scholarship about ethics, we say humans are the ones who do ethics, right? Mm -hmm. Because humans mm -hmm. are the ones who see what is good or bad. Yeah. And what is interesting specifically about this kind of uh, a sort of idea about ethics is that other animals also care about things mm -hmm. and we can see in the way that they respond to things or that we respond to each other that there is a certain care mm -hmm. uh, going on you know between what animals do what humans do so I think that it's one of the only approaches to ethics that can also more deliberately like make space for other animals into 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 doing doing ethics and then like responding to each other and I think we can experiment with this more or think about this more yeah. Because there's not been, I mean, there's not been so much written out there about how this actually works, you know. Mm. So that would be a, a really nice thing to further mm. explore, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. That that makes me think of, um, I read a, something about a research report recently that was, um, well, there was two, two different articles I saw. One was that some of the things that make humans care more about animals in a kind of ethical way is that if they see them having like pro-social behavior. And there was another article I read around about the same time, which was like birds. I don't know if it was just one specific type of bird or whatever, but birds sometimes um, feed, like when they're at the feeding tray, will like pass on food to another bird if they think they're hungry or something like that, you know what I mean? So I was thinking, oh, that is that pro-social behavior that humans are looking for to be like, it's not just me, the human who cares if someone's hungry. Other animals yeah. can also recognize that someone's hungry and needs food, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's a link already about how that, that kind of thinking around those ethics can come together. 
Yeah, and then I wonder how we can also extend this to other kinds of species. I mean, mm-hmm. let's think about like how plants grow, you know, in what directions do plants grow mm-hmm. and the way that trees are able to kind of send nutrients to other trees mm-hmm. to sort of take care of the forest yeah, that's in a way. Right. Yeah. Or the way that maybe like an ant colony sort of collectively decides like what, you know, and I think we need to be careful here mm-hmm. when we say like what is care and what is not, mm-hmm. because I mean, otherwise we're going to anger a lot of scientists that would not describe this as care Mm. which we can also see in some of the some of the uh, work into like plant sciences for example Mm. where there's also a a big discussion going on about what you know what plants are able to do and things Mm. like this but I think it's interesting to look at this as as a kind of care as well and see what you know what how how can we think about other species when we when we try to do this without knowing where this might end you know and if this is like how risky this process actually is thesis um you've got a section which is called the bestiary and do you want to just tell us a bit more about that because it's about how animals or part of it is about how animals tell us things yeah so after i started like collecting these like different traces of multi-species worlds as i was telling about before that then i was trying to find a way to like articulate these stories because by then i had collected you know i had my own design projects that i did uh, in over the past years and also i mean a lot of other stories that i wanted to tell about uh, what sort of what are the sort of traces of multi-species worlds in these stories and so I, I was trying to find a way to articulate them. And in the first attempts, like I was writing them like academic papers, or I was very focused on explaining like the design process uh, of these different uh, projects. But I, and thereby, like I was continuously putting the animals that, that I was writing about again in the background, mm-hmm. because what was foregrounded was again, like sort of the scholarly aspect or like the design aspect. And I think that in academia, this happens a lot. Like we foreground like the researchers or or the methods that are used, uh, or and especially this happens in design where we kind of foreground the design process over like the stakeholders actually. Mm-hmm. And so I was starting to write it up as a kind of like a success story of design, you know, that generates like useful knowledge, but I didn't want to do this so then I wanted to actually sort of start to rethink about this you know and I had a lot of time in the thesis so this was kind of like a multi-year process uh, of, of learning you know about different ways of, of talking about these stories and articulating and presenting them and so what I wanted to do is like foreground what it actually is that animals are telling us about these multi-species worlds. So I tried to find a different way. And here I was also very heavily inspired by the work of uh, Vinciane Depré. Mm-hmm. So she has a book called, What Would Animals Say If We Ask the Right Questions? Mm-hmm. And here she tells like all kind of, she makes it sort of like an alphabet actually. So for each letter, there is a different story. Um, and she tells like different stories of animal sciences. Mm-hmm. And she actually tries to retell the stories of these experiments like by foregrounding the things that, I mean, various animals did to challenge such scientific experience that can sort of turn our structures upside down in a way. Mm-hmm. And so uh, eventually I thought of like a multi-species bestiary as a way to tell these things, because also traditionally 
these kind of bestiaries of his, as we think about them in the medieval tradition, they're often like stories that contain a certain, I mean, a certain morale. Mm. And they often also mix like both fictional animals as well as like sort of the observed animals mm-hmm. uh, or creatures that they, that they encountered. Mm. And they also contain like both text and often like illustrations as well. And these are some of the elements that are part of the, uh, part of the bestiary that I was trying to write. Mm-hmm. And so this whole idea about telling animals is also coming from various like uh, indigenous readings that I try to do. And, and it's really a practice that I'm trying to learn a lot still about because it's a very difficult challenge to write, you know, using human sort of words and mm. language and, and using text and also image like with this kind of goal in mind. Mm. Um, and I think that sort of what is most important is to try to design or write or engage with other animals in, in a way that they are able to change us. Mm-hmm. So, so through their like responses and their ways of engaging with us, they are able to challenge, you know, or to change our thoughts or to, to, you know, change our ideas of our understanding mm-hmm. and they can, they can move us or inspire us or, and, and also really kind of counter or challenge what we are, what we are presenting. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to write, write the stories in this bestiary with this kind of thing in mind where each, each mm-hmm. of the different stories, so there are 10 different stories and each has a kind of animal protagonist and a kind of theme that then connects like what I learned mm-hmm. sort of with the specific animal in mind about multi-species worlds. So either by like, you know, designing directly with them in the projects that I'm talking about, for example, like the penguin project mm-hmm. or like a multi-year project I did with, uh, with dogs, or there's also a section about a project mm-hmm. with the ant colony, for example. So these are like more like my, my own design projects, but also by reading about, uh, about other um, yeah, other kinds of design work that is out there that I think is very inspiring for for thinking about multi-species worlds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there's some great stories there. Do you have a favorite? Oh, that's a very difficult question. <laughs> that's a tough question. Yeah. <laughs> I recently wrote an, uh, rewrote the section about the octopus. So now, like, okay. that's the one that's been most on my mind. Because I think mm. that our human fascination with octopus—I mean, I've never met an octopus—but the amount mm. of sort of stories that we have about octopus and what mm. they do, I think, is very interesting. So mm. in this time, you know, when we're all kind of indoors, and I, I mean, sort of separated from like a lot of other animals as mm. well, when we go out, I think it's interesting that this octopus just keeps coming into our into our living <laughs> into our living space, yeah. and telling us stories, even though they're not—I mean, they're living so far away from us, right? Yeah. So that's one that's been in my mind lately, but. Okay. Yeah. So this was the octopus. There's octopuses in the the science lab, right? And they keep escaping from their uh, enclosures and yeah. And there's this things up and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And there's this idea from Haraway. Also, she uses also a, a project with underwater uh, as an example of what multi-species worlding is, and she uses this notion of tentacular thinking also as a kind of synonym mm-hmm. for the sort of multi-species worlding that we do even though actually an octopus doesn't have uh, tentacles, right? Mm, Because tentacles, I mean, tentacles have only like the suckers at the end and the octopus has them like throughout their entire arm. So there's actually a different species, but uh, I think it doesn't matter for the metaphor that that she's trying to (laughs) say with this. And she she also writes this. Okay, that's interesting. So yeah, because yeah, there's that thing about how octopuses think. Don't they, do they have, do they have a brain? I may edit this yeah, out. I'm think, just trying to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do they not no, have brains in the, in the arms? Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah, the, there's this idea that the, that the, the, they have a sort of a central brain as well, but they have also uh, uh, neurons mm. in their arms, which means that, I mean, they're great multitasking. Yeah. They can do things with eight, eight different limbs at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think what is so, I mean, there's this thing that octopuses fascinate us as they have been like evolving mm. in a very different you know track than humans have. But the things that they're that they're doing are 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 very, I mean, interesting for, for cognitive scientists as well. Yeah, yeah. And so they're highly like research species as well. And there's a lot of mm. stories about what these octopuses actually do in this research environments where they're like mm. not really carrying out the experiments in the way that the researchers want, but they're continuously coming up with other ideas of things that they like to do. Like, you know, mm. pulling stuff in the water, squeezing out, escaping, like this kind of stuff. And the mm. sort of researchers then, of course, with the sort of like modern research perspectives try to stick to what they want to know from the octopus octopus telling a lot of other things and of course like one of the arguments in this in this chapter as well that we don't need to put them in lab tanks in order to learn from them yeah yeah that's a yeah that would be something wouldn't it yeah that's that's so that's a lesson for us from them is that you don't have to put them in these awful conditions just to be able to learn from them yeah Exactly. So the the theme of this section is is then like distant intimacies because mm. you know even though we I mean I don't I, I never met an octopus so even though I have not like I I still feel a kind of intimacy with them so it's a kind of idea that we don't need to necessarily you know go close like we don't need to kind of have them in a zoo or or have them in a research lab tank in order to care about them we can also develop mm. these kinds of cares to like other kinds of stories that we you know that we hear about or even the stories that we invent there's a lot of sort of octopus mythology and stuff like that 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 i think can also create a kind of distant intimacy with the with other creatures so i think that's what the octopus at least in my sort of understanding and my readings like the octopus is that's something that the octopus is telling us about multi-species worlds talking earlier about the feminist care ethic and we were talking about the risks of kind of experimenting I guess with different ways of living one of the stories in the best tree is about the sheep I think it's called is it living with a killer living with your killer yeah living with your killer living Mm -hmm. with your killer so and it's a person who has a flock of sheep and they're trying to I guess to put it in a very non-complex way trying to become one with the flock of sheep and live amongst them so kind of change the relationships that we have with sheep but ultimately will kill them and eat so them the sheep and eat them yeah yeah uh, which is like obviously for vegans this is like the worst betrayal you know this is we've heard stories about this and you hear about farmers who say oh, i love my animals and so on and then take them to the slaughterhouse and or eat them themselves and and this kind of thing and it feels like this really twisted kind of logic so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, exactly. I'm I'm very happy that you highlight this sheep section and also problematizes. Mm-hmm. And one of the kind of attempts I did there with the sheep section is to try to, I mean, when, you know, when we're trying to speculate on what a multi-species world could be, mm-hmm. so what is the opposite of speciesism uh, or kind of, you know, creating a repertoire or like a design sort of 
program where we try to see like this is all part of what we're trying to imagine. I think it's very important to look at the borders mm. and to think of, and because I mean, trying to find stuff at the center is going to be easier than trying to see like what it, you know what is it actually that is not that is not multi-species worlds. You know what is definitely out of it, mm. right? Mm. What, what am I like not okay with? So I was trying to look for a border here, mm-hmm. and this is sort of where this sheep section comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because I do think like some of the stories in this section are about the Navajo relation with the mm-hmm. the churro sheep. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sort of trauma that they've been to and the way that they've been living together through, you know, like colonialist like invasion of their spaces and of the way that they have been uh, living with the sheep and making, mm-hmm. this is especially about the way that they make um, tapestry, right? With mm-hmm. the wool of the of the sheep. And and so I think it's also important to, to, to think about these stories, the ones that are not necessarily like sort of the, the idea of sheep as a factory farm animal, but other kinds of, ways in which sheep are actually in in people's lives mm-hmm. and um and galloway is a design researcher who lives with sheep uh, like, like she's the woman that you mentioned as well so she farms sheep and i do think that she is actually trying to 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 find ways of of living with sheep that could could be said not to be speciesist mm-hmm. and i mean maybe it would be great also to invite Anne on this podcast to talk about this more because i think she would be able to explain yeah. it much better than i can from the readings because i mean she mm-hmm. lives in new zealand so it's very mm-hmm. far from from where i am as well so i haven't mm-hmm. had the chance to you know meet the sheep and mm-hmm. and or meet Anne and, and talk with them mm-hmm. but i think it's what she's trying to do and it aligns much more with like a sort of heroin perspective here as well. She's trying to find ways of living with other animals that does not render them killable, mm-hmm. but may involve killing. And so she's trying to define the difference between making a species killable as in like the species, the, the animal is there as a killable creature. I mean, we are allowed, you know, it's mm-hmm. because they are this animal. Therefore they are killable. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's like a very speciesist ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's trying to find a different way, and and I think that sort of she's asking herself, you know, are there in, are there ways that involve killing another animals that is not speciesist? I mean, we do this when we talk about, for example, a lion killing another an, a prey animal, right? We mm. say this is not a, this is not speciesism because I mean, speciesism is like a human institution of oppression, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so she's trying, you know, she's trying to to move in in this kind of space. And I think that what is very important is that she's she's following also this sort of feminist care ethics and the more like speculative approach. And she always goes, she doesn't know the answer to this question. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know if what she's doing is, is right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to keep this discussion open in anti-speciesist work as well, to see, you know, can we discuss this critically first and, and also kind of, you know, caring about the things that different people are trying to do mm-hmm. and the ways that these sheep are involved in those practices. Mm-hmm. Because there are like many different communities in our world and especially also like indigenous communities mm-hmm. in which people and, and animals live together and thinking about like um, um, like Inuit practices, for example, where, mm-hmm. I mean, there's also critique about veganism from from Inuit perspectives as well, like saying like, well, we living with these animals for thousands of years and, and we don't think that what we do is species. So I think we, we mm. can discuss this. Um, and, and animals are related to in a different way. And some of it is species and some of it maybe, and some of it maybe it's not, but it's interesting, I think, to talk about it. Mm. But of course we need to be critical and, and also create a discussion that, that never really leads to claim like, 
no matter what one does, you know, we can be very thoughtful living with our sheep. Yeah. But then if, if we also kill them and eat them for their meat, maybe that's not, not fully okay. And, and this, yeah. as you say, it can quickly turn into a kind of twisted example of human exceptionalism. And that's the, mm. the biggest risk, I think, in, in telling stories, because if you learn to write well, you can kind of cover things up. <laughs> you know, by telling beautiful stories about sheep or octopus yeah. uh, in a way that sort of makes it then sound a lot better than maybe it actually is. Yeah. And so what I am asking in this section specifically is like, what is it that the sheep are actually telling us? Mm. And I think, I mean, it's a very short section. It's more mm. like an, you know, like a like an inclusion of the work of Galloway that is that is well known in the field of design and multi-species design work. Mm. Um, but so I would need to, you know, do a lot more about this section to, yeah. to think this through more clearly to think to think about like and and this is for example related to the the navajo and the churro sheep mm. like they're talking about how how the wool of the sheep is used to tell the stories of colonial trauma in the in the carpets that the, that are made mm. and then i'm also thinking so okay so the actual body part is telling the story of the colonial trauma that both the navajo and the churro have been through yeah. uh, by you know calling and, and killing uh, the their uh, their ways of of living mm -hmm. uh, and then i'm also thinking well does the sheep actually care about being turn into a carpet or <laughs> and what you know what do they tell and so i think these mm -hmm. this lead to interesting discussions that that is i think will be interesting to uh to go further into i mean how can we then actually live with sheep in a way that allow us to respond to each other you know perhaps there are ways of thinking more about like sanctuaries mm -hmm. uh in in which some of these elements still play a role i don't know mm -hmm. and where are the borders you know mm -hmm. because i think trying to find something to trying to find like an idea of what is the opposite of speciesism also needs to investigate these borders mm. uh, to you know where where do we draw the line in a way that the line is always foggy right we don't really mm. quite know without being too harsh about it so that's why the the story is there and yeah. i think that haraway describes this in a way she says like what we need to do is stay with the trouble so mm. look at this very troubled situation and instead of kind of critiquing and distancing ourselves from it by sort of simply saying this is not okay maybe there's something in that situation that we can still learn from when mm -hmm. we think about what is a multi-species world and i think it's important to say that also haraway has been criticized by by people in the animal rights movement for saying this kind of stuff mm -hmm. um, as you know mm -hmm. in, in the relation that she has with the dog and then she's doing like agility training with the dog for example mm -hmm. and people are saying like well is this really like becoming with that you're talking about or is yeah. this like a kind of conditioning Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of without trying to defend either, mm -hmm. we can still try to see what are the traces of multi-species worlds that we can find in here. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the, the hybrid space that I'm trying to occupy in the thesis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really glad the sheep bit is in there because it does kind of, you know, it just makes you ask those kind of questions as an anti-speciesist approaching it trying to get into the multi-speciesism way of looking at things. And from what you were saying there, it seems to me really interesting about how actually even that kind of project itself kind of does probably challenge human exceptionalism more than it encourages it, maybe. Yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting yeah. way of putting it, yeah. Mm. I think that's definitely what the researcher is trying to achieve, yeah. Mm. Because... If we go in there already knowing the answer, you know, as the human, 
then we're not opening up that space. I think you explained it so well about how it kind of opens up spaces to think about that stuff. But I know that a lot of people listening to this right now are going to be like, and maybe, you know, feeling that outrage is like part of addressing, because we're not going to address, I, I think some of what you're getting at is that we've kind of taken it as accepted that we understand what speciesism is. We know how it manifests. And that's why we're anti-speciesist. But I don't think we've even scraped the surface of what speciesism really is. Mm. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and that's also very much part of the discussion, as well as, of course, the outrage as well. Mm. And and thinking about, like, so how, so how do she propose to live with us? Mm-hmm. If they, of course, were to exist, right? Because mm-hmm. one other that is kind of a more, also like a more distant approach is to say, well, we should, the sheep shouldn't exist because these are farm animals. And I mean, they can be sort of living all their lives in sanctuaries, but we should mm. definitely not breed them, right? That is a that is a perspective as well, of course, and it's important. Mm. And and I think that what what Galloway is trying to do is thinking of like so so how, so I have these sheep now, mm. and so how can we actually um, live together? Mm. And and how how do the sheep propose to live with us? Because if we propose that they shouldn't exist, then we can also never ask this question, right? Mm-hmm. If we don't actually try to find out how we, you know, how they, what their preferences are, like what is it about, you know, what can we, what can we give them in terms of care and shelter and and food and and mm-hmm. and a safe space, as is very similar to a sanctuary, for example, environment, and and then sort of what do they give us in return becomes the follow-up question then right yeah that's that's yeah. the thing that that and that's of course the thing that's under discussion here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah wow okay that's brilliant <laughs> i think we'll leave that one there because <laughs> that's going to be a lot for people to digest i suppose so i'm still yeah. processing it myself it's yeah um Okay, well, perhaps next... it's similar. If I sorry, mm-hmm. maybe it's interesting to to extend it into yeah. in the way that we live with our dogs. Mm. That is also, in a way, like from from its sort of origin, is a very speciesist. I mean, way of live, like having domesticated yeah. animal in your home, right? But I think that on a daily basis, everybody who lives with a dog or a cat also sees that there is a continuous negotiation, that there is no like one answer mm. to like how the dog proposes to live with us. It changes, you know, and it changes mm. per dog and it changes per home and <laughs> and, mm. and per day, perhaps. So so I think this is a, maybe a similar, uh, yeah, a similar experiment of, well, if, if we didn't live with dogs, we also wouldn't be able to ask them this question, right? Mm. And so if we think about how we can live with dogs better, mm-hmm. we need to be open to, to being changed by yeah. the situation, by the, the, yeah. the difficulties that this situation proposes and brings mm-hmm. in. And yeah, because I think probably the biggest risk to like animal liberation or, or the animals themselves is keeping them fixed in a certain position in our minds. You know, that's like, so if we assume that we know what the dogs want and and that they have very basic needs that we meet every day and that's that. But like say, most people who do have, you know, dogs and cats realize there's a lot more going on there. Right. Um, And that like we grow as people, well, I wonder if people think about this actually, as we grow and change as people, dogs and cats also are going to 
change as they go through life you know mm -hmm. but do we just see them as having these like even as anti-speciesists or vegans and this is part of the problem i think is do we still see them within that dominant mindset right. of which is actually a speciesist mindset of really not having that much going on right you know? and one of the one of the other reasons that the the section of the sheep is included there is because i wanted to i mean mo many of the readers of my thesis because it's in the field of design not necessarily animal rights so mm -hmm. a lot of the people that read it actually are meat eaters mm. and i remember i started writing and i sent a draft to my supervisor who actually is a is a meat eater as well i think he turned vegetarian over the project that one. Mm -hmm. nice. so, something <laughs> something happened there but but this this section of the sheep really really moved him mm. in a way of like perhaps a meat eater doesn't often think about you know the fact that these relations can exist right so it also mm. in a way addresses that from the sheep perspective it is actually about living with your killer mm -hmm. which you know if i if i put it like that it changes it, it makes first it makes the sheep an active like uh, protagonist in the story mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then it's interesting to see what that does to people who who perhaps still eat meat uh, mm -hmm. or engage in this kind of uh, speciesist relations so that's also perhaps part of why yeah i was like i'm not i mean in the section itself i also write like look i would never be able to i mean live with a sheep and then and then kill mm -hmm. her and then eat her like i wouldn't be able to do that so i think that that that's not the that's not the way to go for me but i cannot be sure Mm. that it cannot be possible right so then mm. i i include the story there so it was it's a very controversial <laughs> section let's say it is yeah <laughs> it is yeah it's important though i'm glad it makes there. us think yeah mm. definitely i'm glad to hear that because yeah. when i was writing it's also it, it made me feel a little bit like i was abandoning the mm. yeah maybe perhaps you know abandoning the animal rights perspective and that's a difficult position mm. to write from as well yeah yeah, but I think that's part of the challenge is that we have to be able to take, because ultimately what we're trying to do from an animal rights or an animal liberation perspective is to get people who aren't vegan yet, or whatever you want to call it, to change their minds. But if we're not even going to address why they think the way they do, and if the or, or Rather, if the way we address it is by saying, well, we know the right answer. I know the right answer. It's don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. Mm. Everything they come back with, you know, you see it all the time in these stupid outreach videos. Well, what about animals that live on an organic farm or whatever? And so is it, well, no, because ultimately still wrong. Blah, mm. blah, blah. Mm. And so we're not giving any space to them to like. Or explore, any space, yeah. Or know? any space to deposit positive side yeah because of course yeah. it's a lot about what we cannot do and what we cannot yeah. eat but i think the most i mean to me like the most inspiring vegan activism is is like cooking videos mm -hmm. and i watch them mm -hmm. a lot because it creates so much possibility right mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. we, th we we can think the same about like other kinds of relations that it's not necessarily about cons consumption but also about living with mm -hmm. it's like well we cannot do a lot of things but what can we do then yeah. and then explore that question a little bit more yeah. i think that's very important as you're saying yeah, and to recognize that in a, in an exploitative relationship, like a speciesist relationship from human to say a dog, there's still good stuff that happens there, as we know, you know. So and there are always things that animals are saying. Yeah, yeah they always yeah. respond, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, 
that's it. It's about paying attention to the responses, mm. I think, is ultimately what comes through in your Backwards. work. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> okay. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mentioned earlier when we were discussing the vestry about um how some of the animals were kind of mixed up uh mixed up like a kind of fictional sometimes as well or part animal part monster and so on so i was wondering what your thoughts are on kind of like monsters and othering because i think we see some animals as monsters like you know like when the jaws film came out that turned sharks into scary monsters for humans right and i think probably so many people are scared of sharks for you know that that film is known to have had a lot of impact on the certainly the way people in the west think of sharks um whereas actually sharks kill like i don't know a handful of people they eat a handful of people a year and we kill like mm. millions <laughs> of sharks you know so anyway so i'm digressing mm. a bit i guess but yeah so what you've said what animals can tell us is there things that monsters can show us mm, yeah exactly yeah i think the story of the monsters in the thesis was was very much inspired by like playing a lot of video games and of course also encountering a lot of monsters in, in video games and also reading a little bit about uh, video video game scholarship and monstrosity because there's some work on that as well and i found many of this scholarship was actually quite focused on like the more like masculine aspects of monsters in game mm -hmm. in, in games uh, well, actually, there's a lot of very interesting uh, readings on like monstrosity in, in queer theory, for example, mm -hmm. and also post-humanism that becomes like a much more popular angle, I think, uh, nowadays mm -hmm. as well. So I think like, so I was writing there, like our idea of m what monsters are is determined by what our society sees as normal, right? Mm -hmm. so, so like, as you said, like monsters are inhibiting a kind of borderland, mm -hmm. sort of what is, you know, what is considered to be human and what is you know what is not mm -hmm. and then like also interestingly this more like etym etymological roots of like the word monster as in like in in the latin you have this monstrare and in french you have this montre mm -hmm. and it means like to show forth mm -hmm. and so what i was starting to think is like well monsters then are or sort of inspired by the readings of course it's like we can understand monsters also as these creatures that are showing forth like different ways of beings mm -hmm. they are like performing something other than what we think is sort of the the, the norm the human norm mm. uh, by being you know by evoking this sort of sublime feelings or by being very scary or by mm -hmm. you know uh, by by transgressing like boundaries mm. and then uh, one of the other things that was inspiring there is like uh, this uh, uh, Carol J. Adams, she, she writes in her uh, Sexual Politics of Meat, she writes like, well, but Frankenstein's monster was actually a vegetarian, right? Yeah, that's right. And I started rereading it and then it's mm. like, it's very interesting actually because I had not thought about it when I originally read that many years ago. So mm. the, the monster doesn't want to hurt any other creatures. Mm -hmm. And so I think that in this way, like monsters are so inspiring to also to find out what, like, what multi-species worlds can be mm. in a way that is not only like, cute and fluffy and friendly and caring right mm. it's also it can also be very violent maybe mm. it, it can also inspire these kinds of things i mean not violent towards anyone but it can you know like what do like really scary creatures tell us about multi-species worlds 
mm. um, sort of creatures that we find really scary. And this is, as you mentioned with the shark example, this is always changing mm. because the things in society that we see as monsters have been changing over time, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and this is also very much like uh, clear in, in like sort of humans who transgress boundaries that have been that have been like defined as sort of mon monstrous, you know, mm -hmm. that don't look like like humans. So it's also about like uh, all this kind of marginalized communities that sort of mm -hmm. are, are are seen as monsters by the sort of mm -hmm. normal human. What do they tell us about, you know, what, what can they teach us about other possibilities in a way that is actually inspiring rather than something that we should sort of run away from. Yeah. And so my own experience in this section was from, uh, from the video game called, uh, it's a Zelda series video game called Breath of the Wild. And in this game, it's like an open world game. So you can kind of go in any direction and explore like all these different areas. And you, you meet like many different uh, creatures, like animals or even like spirits or creatures like defined as monsters or, or enemies and also friends. And then when starting to play this game, I was thinking, well, actually that the game tries to convince you to sort of kill or bully or steal from these other creatures as, I mean, most video games are designed like that, right? Yeah. And then I started to sort of automatically feel like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to hurt these, uh, mm. these other creatures. So I started to do like a, what is maybe called like a vegan run of the game. Mm -hmm. uh, so I tried to like not to kill or harm or bully any of the other creatures mm -hmm. or like didn't want to buy any items, you know, that are made out of like animal body parts, for example. Mm -hmm. And this was a super interesting experience to me. And also I read about this online. There are several other players who have been doing this and also talking about this in, in forum and thinking about like, yeah, but what is like what is considered to be okay then right mm. is like a kind of evil spirit is that like to kill is that vegan or not or like you know mm. what happens if i receive this item from this other um from this other entity in the game as a gift that contains of animal body parts so mm. so what to do and this is also something that we have in the real world right we, we mm. ask ourselves this question like what if i receive a gift from somebody you know what should i do with it as a as a vegan that doesn't yeah. want to have this particular item so these mm -hmm. kind of questions sort of or you know is it okay to hurt uh, an insect for example or mm -hmm. like a like sort of spot a mosquito when mm -hmm. it's trying to bite us so that those kind of questions also extend in these virtual spaces mm -hmm. um and and through this ex experiment like i mean it's first of all it's still doing this vegan run it still makes for an interesting game mm -hmm. um so that was i mean that was also because some of other games you cannot simply play them if you don't sort of accept the fact that you need to kill other other creatures right yeah so it was still uh, interesting and then i started to also develop like very different relationship with these monsters in the game mm -hmm. uh, like i you know i started following them or doing some kind of more like hide and seek things or like mm -hmm. observing to see what they're doing when you know when i'm not close uh, and this also changed my whole experience of, of the world and the way that I sort of interpreted the game. Mm -hmm. um, and then so in that section of, of Monsters, I, I tried to kind of talk about this experience and, and then also I write like how these virtual worlds can actually become like places where we actually experiment with these kinds mm -hmm. of uh, different ways of thinking about multi-species worlds as well. So mm -hmm. I, was, I was thinking that, well, perhaps it's not only like animals in the real world that are telling stuff, but you know, we have other kinds of uh, virtual spaces, but also fictional stories and other kinds of things that inspire us and, and in which those fictional creatures can actually still tell us what what the opposite of speciesism or what the multi-species world uh, could be. And thereby like mm -hmm. this kind of experience experiment is comes even becomes even like a sort of political experiment right like thinking about 
how can I be vegan in the game? And then what, you know, how can I talk or write about this in, mm -hmm. in scholarship or in activism? And there are many vegan players online that discuss these kind of questions and yeah. discuss, you know, what is okay or how how do I go through this section without of the game without uh, without killing this enemy that I need to pass, for example. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's like a way to practice relationships without kind of the real world consequences but it still might impact on how you then relate in the real world so you're exactly it's very experimental yeah exactly and so i wrote this that in the real world i often find it very difficult to be vegan mm. but in the game it was somehow like i could create this character as i mean mm. the, the protagonist of the game is link so you play as link who i think is also a kind of queer character as well so mm. that also really helps with this whole like thinking about monsters here and, uh, and and I found in a game I could make this discussion, these decisions, like this vegan decision, I could make them very radically and very clear. Like I didn't mm -hmm. have to explain to everybody else, you know, at the table or in the restaurant or yeah. wherever you go, you know, mm -hmm. it was, it, it felt like, a, 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 yeah, kind of liberate, like a sort of self-liberation or self-fashioning, if you, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. of, of yourself as a, as a vegan uh, mm -hmm. in this digital world. Wow. That's really cool. I'm sure I've read somewhere that something like, I don't know which game it was, but one where people interact uh, like second world or something like that. Um, second life or something, something like that where PETA arranged like a protest in the virtual world against like an aquarium or something. Uh -huh, okay. Yeah. I think I heard funny. that too. Yeah. <laughs> just like, yeah. And I think, yeah. yeah, PETA has also critiqued some video games. For example, mm. they have been critiquing like the Pokemon series as well, right. as it's very much about the, uh, you know, catching and the uh, mm. training and conditioning Pokemon, putting them mm -hmm. in a small, like <laughs> small red ball yeah, yeah. <laughs> where they live most of the time, it seems. Yeah. And it's interesting that they extend this to virtual worlds. But again, like there is a lot to critique. And I think that many games, I mean, most games, in most games, other entities are there as a resource. Mm -hmm. So it relates very much to our, uh, mm -hmm. you know, our norm in, in, in the real world where animals are also often a resource. So I, yeah. can't, I can't wait for like a sort of newer generation of games that also sees this differently, that doesn't only think of the other creatures in the game as resource, but, but mm -hmm. has a, also a little bit of a less like player-centric approach yeah. to what all these other, you know, how these other creatures are also in ecology together, for yeah. example. Because that would make games much more fun. I yeah, <laughs> and multi-species virtual worlds. Yeah, that would be cool. And there, I mean, for those people who are interested in playing more games, vegan. I mean, this uh, Breath of the Wild is very good, but there's also Horizon Zero Dawn, which is interesting, mm -hmm. um, perhaps to play. Or I recently played the Ghost of Tsushima, also as a vegan player. I mean, there's lots of interesting mm. options, I think, or, or just simply looking for that, because I think it opens up also a kind of world for playing games for, for vegans who feel like they, they don't want to, uh, they, yeah, they don't want to play uh, violently in, in, in virtual spaces. So it's maybe just some final thoughts on how to wrap mm -hmm. it up on what you think, I suppose, like what, and we've spoken about that as well, about how people can do stuff in their own life. So it kind of answers the question, but just if you have any final thoughts on mm -hmm. what, what anti-species or animal liberation activists could, how they could develop some of these ideas you presented maybe. Yeah. So I think that this work is very much like an attempt to find 
to find a space between like critique and sort of pure optimism mm. because I found it very difficult to find a design space that is mm. not like it's not a negative thing but that we can actually take inspiration from mm -hmm. uh, for imagining like these alternatives to speciesism so if anything I hope that the stories in this work I mean they can be read sort of separately like you don't need to go through the whole theory to just read some of the stories that are mm. in the in the this theory And, and they can be read, you know, in a different order as well. So just mm -hmm. to see if, if there's something that's, that speaks to somebody, perhaps it, it can be inspiring as a sort of encouragement for us to come up with, with other traces. Mm -hmm. Like I, I put sort of 37 illustrations that are all like, I mean, you mentioned the example of the person with the, that opens the window to let the fly out. Mm -hmm. I think they're all kind of attempts to try to find like very small traces in our daily lives where, where we already enact these multi-species worlds mm -hmm. and and i think that from there that would be a really good place to to think of further possibilities and so then in the sort of stories it's about how we can then foreground the things that animals say and the way that animals become part of this conversation mm -hmm. and i hope that this will lead you know to a kind of paradigm where we're not only thinking about Uh, the future of living with animals amongst humans, but where animals actually become part of these conversations much more deliberately. So that mm. would be sort of the main mm. goal that I'm trying to reach that, that I think may be interesting for, um, yeah, for other activists.